Well, good morning. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this is Jonathan Stormit. My name hey. is Luke Norsworthy. Uh, from the video, it might look like I was not there. Uh, Jonathan was the only one in the video, but let me just r tell you up front, uh, I am the brains behind the operation, and he's simply just the beauty. <laughs> and so I'm the Christian, and he's the atheist. Would you say that's the... Some, something like that. <laughs> and so last year, John and I decided we're going to do this series uh, about Christians being the best atheists. And we worked on it, we thought about it, um, and then one day I get a text from Jonathan, and he says, hey, instead of this sermon series that we're going to write, just being something that, you know, we read some books about, what if we make a trip, let's fly to, to Athens? And my first thought was, Georgia? Like, <laughs> Athens, Georgia? And he goes, no, let's go to Greece. And I thought, that's a terrible idea. But we went. And uh, I think it turned out to be not a complete terrible idea. Uh, it's something that's... very uh, kind of you. Huh? It's very kind of you. Yeah, it's not a terrible idea. And that's what I'm saying about this class. It's not a terrible <laughs> use of your time. So thank you for being here. Have you considered sales? You think I'd be good at that? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Well, instead of just holding the camera in front of you like this, I could do that. Yeah. So that, that'd be a promotion. So uh, when, when I was in high school, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, right next to Little Rock, Arkansas, and there was this place that we worked at, uh, the Memphis Flea Market in Little Rock, Arkansas, because we, we were horrible at naming things in Little Rock. And one of my first jobs was to deliver tables to people for tips. And uh, there was this guy that I had worked for a few weekends. It was like this big flea market, and um, I was setting up his booth. And after getting to know him for a few months, seemed like a totally normal guy, I found out that he was an atheist. And he was the, like the first real live atheist that I had ever met. And my first thought after getting to know this guy was, you seem so normal. <laughs> and my second thought in my little homeschooled, sheltered, you know, anti-cooperation Church of Christ brain was, I hope it doesn't rub off on me. <laughs> like, I don't want, you know, I can't, I don't want to put like a coexist hippie bumper sticker on my car or start voting Democrat or whatever it is that atheists do. That goes over way better in Texas. But anyway, <laughs> so, but then we started talking and it turns out that um, he wasn't always an atheist. He used to be a Baptist. And then we finally had something rational to argue about again, right? So I talked to this guy for a long time, and it, uh, the reason uh, he, had he became an atheist was pretty um, complicated, and some parts of it were pretty compelling. And I say all that to say, like, since I've entered ministry, and really for ever since that moment, I have had a lot of people in my life deconvert to atheism. So when I think of atheists, I'm not thinking about ideas of people. I'm thinking about friends and family, and people that I love, and people who love me. And I have almost not met a single one who was not at one point in their life a Christian. Sometimes, you know, there's a couple that I know that used to be Jewish, but for the most part, they used to come from the same kind of faith. And somewhere along the way, they found faith in God too um, difficult, too intellectually dry, or, and they, they felt like they had to decide between their integrity and their faith. And this isn't always true, but one of the reasons I think that atheists have um, a stereotype with a lot of people of, of being angry is because when they came out to their friends and family, like, I can no longer believe what you believe, the way they were treated was pretty bad. I know a lot of people with stories like that. And so we'd like to start off today with just a little bit of a framework of why you probably know an increasing amount of people like that. 
Right after 9-11 happened, there was a rise of all things religious. I don't know if you remember this, but the Sunday after that Tuesday, churches were packed. Churches were packed all over the country. Synagogues were packed all over the country. People started talking about it like it was a revival of some kind, but it actually, um, after a couple of weeks, plateaued out, and everybody thought things had gone back to normal. But unbeknownst to all, everybody at the time, but we've all been affected by it, at, at, right after 9-11, something happened that has changed the course of history. A neuroscientist named Sam Harris sat down and began to write a book called The End of Faith. It was a book that was a scathing attack, not on Christianity, not just on Christianity, but on all things religious. Um, he tried to get it published, and dozens of publishers turned him down before finally this, um, what is now known as the neo-atheist Sam Harris, um, finally finds a publisher, and it spent 32 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Around the same time, Richard Dawkins decides that he's going to write the book, The God Delusion. And um, he opens up his book by saying, if this book functions the way I intend for it to function, People who believe in God when they pick up this book, by the time they are finished with it, will no longer believe in God. Three million people bought that book in over 35 different languages. And the next year, Christopher Hitchens came out with a book, God is Not Good, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And again, these guys were not just trying to like take on Christian or, or Islam. They were not trying to fight against Islam in response to 9-11. They were talking about how religion is a universally bad force. And these guys were rock stars. They were all over college campuses. They were on late night talk shows. They were going everywhere with this one central idea. Religion is really, really bad. Um, and by all metrics, they've been very successful. Not by getting people to convert to atheism. There has not been a big uptick in the rise of atheists. But there has been a huge increase in another demographic. 23% of the U.S. population, it's called the rise of the nuns. And it's important how you spell that because it's N-O-N-E. And these are not people who are angry at religion. For the most part, they might be a little jaded and cynical and upset that they wasted so much time on Sunday mornings when they were growing up. But for the most part, they're not looking to argue with you about religion. They're not looking to argue with you about church or Christianity or any of those things. They're just not interested in them anymore. And for the most part, 35% of the nuns are uh, millennial. 35% of their, their, um, 35% are white, left-leaning men who are millennials. And they're not hostile towards religion. They just don't care about it anymore. Not because they're very attracted to atheism. That's, that's, that's not the case. They're not looking to get into arguments. They're not looking for answers. They're just not interested. And so part of the reason we wanted to do these ser this series is because we're in that demographic. These are our friends. These are people that we care a lot about. And one of the things that I've started to notice that kind of was compelling to make us consider doing this was that there was something that was starting to happen. When I would ask my friends who were deconverting from Christianity or who were basically just drifting away into nothingness and it really doesn't matter, just some kind of general nebulous secular kind of spirituality, 
when I would ask them why they had walked away from Christianity, the reasons they gave me were all over the place. Sometimes it was a process, sometimes it was a book they read, sometimes it was a class they took, sometimes you know, it was a tragic event in their life, sometimes it took weeks or months or years. But when I, they would describe the reason that they walked away from Christianity, I found myself thinking over and over again, what you're describing has nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, the things that you're describing, the God that you're describing that you find repulsive is nothing like the God of Christianity. In fact, the very things that you are walking away from in Christianity, the things that you are giving as examples of reasons you want to leave church, etc., are things that the first Christians never embraced and would have actually found quite offensive. And, and this is the big point of what we want to do the next three days. While you may not be aware of it, Turning away from Jesus. You cannot turn away with something without turning towards something else. And while you're unaware of it, you may be turning away or turning towards the very things you think you're turning away from. In other words, the things you hate, the things you really hate about religion, you may not be turning away from, but towards, because all of life is religious. So if you ask someone today, do you believe in God? You're going to get three answers usually. Yes, no, maybe. Do you believe in God? It's going to be one of those three answers. But the question that no one asks is probably the right follow-up question. Do you believe in God? Which God are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Which one? Because we're all religious in some way. Uh, there was a piece in uh, the New York Times last summer by a professor in uh, South Dakota State, Clay Rutledge. And in it, he, he cites some statistics about the declining religion. These are stats that, that we've heard general gist of them before. Decades ago, 95% of Americans had some form of religious connection. Uh, now that number's dropped to 75%, some religious connection. Church attendance is 15 to 20%. So traditional religious behavior is declining. So it's no surprise that traditional religious thinking, Christian thinking, has changed. Uh, in 2007, 71% uh, of people said that they would believe that God exists in certainty. 71% were certain that God exists 2007. 2014, that number drops to 63%. Uh, 2007, 71% believe certainly God exists. Seven years later, it's dropped to 63%. Side note, Jonathan did start preaching in 2007. <laughs> so I don't know if that's connected or not. That is true. Shots though. fired. But it's no surprise religious behavior, religious thinking has diminished. But during that time, do you want to know what has found an increase in not only belief but in certainty? UFOs. There's a higher belief in aliens. Now, I, I, I'm not really sure why. I don't know if E.T. has phoned someone's home and they've got it recorded. I don't know what happened. But this is from the piece uh, from Clay Rutledge at um, South Dakota State. He says, an emerging body of research supports the thesis that these interests in non-traditional, supernatural, and paranormal phenomena, which honestly, that sounds interesting, Non-traditional, supernatural, and parent it, it sounds better than aliens, I'm just saying that. Are driven by the same cognitive processes and motives that inspire religion. For instance, my colleagues and I recently published a series in the journal Motivation and Emotion, which 
I know you all read, demonstrating that the link between low religiosity and belief in advanced alien visitors is at least partly explained by the pursuit of meaning. The less religious participants were, we found, the less they perceived their lives as meaningful. This lack of meaning was associated with a desire to find meaning, which in turn was associated with belief in UFOs and alien visitors. Now, there are plenty of agnostics and atheists who don't believe in aliens, and there are theists who do believe in aliens. I'm not trying to say there's a direct correlation. But what I am saying is that the research has shown that people are always looking for something. The question isn't, which God do you believe in? Actually, that is the question. The question is, which God do you <laughs> believe <Nailed> in? <laughs> Even if it's not religion, it's going to be something. Religion in its most fundamental sense is how we understand ourselves. Uh, religion comes from the Latin word ligare, which becomes ligaments. This is the thing that rebinds us together, and we're all looking for something to do that. Uh, there's a professor named David Dark. He wrote a book called Life's Too Short to Pretend That You're Not Religious. It's a great title. And in that book, he has this quote. He says, religion happens... When we get pulled in, moved, called out, or compelled by something outside ourselves. It could be a car commercial, a lyric, a painting, a theatrical performance, or the magnetic pull of an Apple store. The calls to worship mm -hmm. are everywhere. Now, I cut the next part of the quote because I live in Texas, and that's the quote about football. <laughs> and I'm not going to bring that up because I want to keep my job. The question isn't, do you believe in God? The question is, which one? Because we're all looking for that compelling, centralizing story that brings us together, that rebinds us to ourself. And in the first century, Christians were called atheists because there were a thousand competing stories around them. There were a thousand things that were luring them in to give their allegiance to, and they learned to turn their back to them. They learned to pick their poison well. So this is the witness of the Bible. Um, and, and so he's going to do fancy quotes, and I'm just going to give you the Bible. which is the, It's been a great partnership, wouldn't you say? With, um, no, for real. This and is, I also read stuff on the top shelf. <laughs> so I also, I also do that. Oh, yeah. So uh, in the Bible, from start to finish, the witness of the Bible is against idolatry. Because it knows this one thing that we have forgotten, that we have fooled ourselves into thinking isn't true. Everybody's religious. Everybody's worshiping, and you cannot turn that part of your brain off. So, in the beginning, like um, the, the book of Exodus, to us, you know, that's a cool VBS story about God delivering the Israelites from slavery. But does it change the way you read it if you find out that Pharaoh was telling everyone that he was God on, on, in the earth? He was God in the flesh, right? And his job was to maintain mayot, which is the word for balance. Let me hear you say mayot. 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 Thank you, Todd, for saying with enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> Mayot. Because uh, if the Nile goes up, everybody drowns. If the Nile goes down, everybody dies from drought. So ba balance is a really big thing. And to that end, to keep control and to keep balance, Pharaoh has the nine gods or the nine bows of Egypt, the, the principalities and powers that report to the Pharaoh, right? These are, you know, the, sun, the god 
the son of the god, uh, Ra, Ra the, the sun god, um, and all these different gods that Pharaoh has that report to him, kind of. And the story of Exodus is God going to Moses and saying, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who your people are. And the book of Exodus is a crash course introduction to who the God of the universe is. So every one of those plagues is God breaking the bow of Pharaoh. Every one of them. Oh, you think, you think livestock are God? They're dead. You think the Nile is God? It's turned to blood. You think the sun is God? It's blotted out. And ultimately, the last plague is God destroying the dynasty of the person who is saying, I am worthy of your worship. This is what the Bible is trying to do. It is the, a story of God at war with all uh, counterfeit gods. And then after the Israelites are delivered from um, slavery and after they wander around for a few years because of some complaining and some other stuff, they finally get to the promised land. And before they cross into the promised land, there is a passage that people grew up with like on ceramic plates in their home, but it's actually a radical passage if you're paying attention to it. Joshua stops and says, now listen, before we go in there, you have a choice to make. Fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that they worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that Joshua stops and gives them a choice. He's give, as a preacher, I would not give an invitation with a multiple choice. Would anybody like to be baptized in the name of Jesus or um, Marduk? You know, no. Like, but he's given them a choice because the kingdom of God cannot be compelled or coerced, forced on other people. It must be chosen against all rival kingdoms. But what I want you to notice is that he's basically saying you have to choose from the different principalities and powers that you have encountered in your life. They come at you from the categories of your past experience, from things you're experiencing now. The temptations are real. They come at them the same way they come at you. And he does not go through the list and say, or you could just choose, you know, not to worship. Because that's not an option. It never has been. We are built to bow. There's this uh, philosopher named Peter Kreft who says, the opposite of theism is not atheism. It's idolatry. And idolatry is something the Bible condemns from Genesis to Revelation. You know that in Genesis chapter 1, which you know, over the last 120 years has been used as kind of a polemic against Charles Darwin, as if that's what Genesis was trying to address, it in its day was incredibly controversial, but not for the reasons it is today. The reason Genesis 1 was controversial today is because guess what people worshipped back in the day? The sun the trees, the things around them. And Genesis 1, like a freight train, comes into that ancient world and says, no, 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 no. God, the God of everything, made the sun. The God of everything made those things that you're worshiping. Those things aren't worthy of your worship. The moon, the stars, those things aren't worthy of your worship. Our God made it. Um, but not just that. In Genesis 1, when it says that God put his image on human beings, you want to know what that word is translated almost every other time in your Bible? It's not translated image, it's translated idol. The one place God puts God's image, God's idol, is in you. It's in me. You want to see what God is like? You look around. 
It's, it's the only place you can get a faint glimpse of what God is like. This is why the prophets, when they talk about idolatry, talk about injustice in the same breath, because it's the same. It's the same. It's different sides of the same coin. Whenever you, whenever. Um, something becomes more important than how you treat the person right in front of you. Chase that down. There's a very good chance there is some kind of idolatry. There, notice what one prophet, a guy named Ezekiel, says in uh, chapter 14. Ezekiel says, Therefore, tell the people of God, uh, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked, wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to the prophet, I will stand against them. Notice what Ezekiel says. I, they put up idols in their hearts. It does not have to be a statue. Idols can be anything. It can be worshiping your money, to your sexuality, to your nation, to your political ideas, to your country. Anything can be God. And anything you're looking for for like, you know, ultimate meaning and significance can be your God. Anything that you say, if I don't have that, my life isn't worth living, can be your God. What are some examples of gods these days? Well, I'll tell you, Jonathan. <laughs> I, a year ago, I was with a, <laughs> a year ago, I was with a, a buddy of mine who's from uh, uh, Sydney, uh, Australia, in yeah, case you know that, where that is. And he was over in the States, and we were in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, we were driving around, and we were using his phone for the GPS. And so at, at one point it said, uh, in half a mile, turn, turn right onto the slip road. And I was like, Turn right on the, the slip road, and I, like, what is it? I don't know. I've seen preachers who are on a slippery slope, but I've never seen uh, a slip road. What, what is that? He goes, it's, it's that thing right there. And I go, that's what we call in the States an access road. What, what, what's wrong with your phone? But in different places, they call the same thing a different, different name. Same idea, same concept, same thing. It just has a different name. And, and we see this with businesses. Some of you drive a Nissan. You go back to the early 80s, a Nissan was not called a Nissan, it was called a Datsun, right? Um, huh. Many. <laughs> Never made go ahead, sorry. <laughs> Thanks for listening and <laughs> prep for this. Uh, Pete's Super Submarines, you want to know what restaurant that is now? Subway. Yeah, I paid attention to the other ones. I didn't know the okay. Datsun one. But actually, Google, we all know Google, but before Google was Google, it had a previous iteration, and that name was Backrub, which like, makes it kind of creepy, like, hey, go figure out who the, like, the mayor of Sacramento is. Go Backrub the mayor of Sacramento. Like, it just doesn't seem, doesn't seem it's, but it's the same thing. It's just a different name. And as we're saying all along, the question isn't which do you worship by God, it's which one. And so we think of ourselves, you know, we don't worship Athena, we don't worship Dionysius or Zeus or Aphrodite, but just because we don't use the name doesn't mean the same idea, the same concept isn't there. We as modern people look at them and go, I can't believe you would go to a temple of Aphrodite or Athena or Zeus or Poseidon. But we do the same thing. We don't give them a temple, but we give them the affections of our heart. Mm -hmm. And we don't write a check to them. We don't, we don't bring like a goat to them. But some of us are willing to sacrifice our kids on the altar of success. Some of us are willing to sacrifice our family on the altar of pleasure. Some of us are willing to sacrifice our convictions to make a little extra money at work. In Acts 17, 
Paul goes uh, in front of the religious people of his day. He's in Athens. And he says, I I see you all are very religious in every way. And then he mentions one specific altar. An altar to the unknown God. And so so they're kind of like hedging their bets. Like just in case they forget one, like this is kind of like their their blanket coverall. And so kind of what they had going in their mind was that you could worship every single God at the same time. And you definitely don't want to leave any out. And so what often happened in the Greco-Roman culture is you go from place to place and you would assimilate the new gods into your kind of repertoire of gods. You'd you'd bring them all in. And we kind of have the same thing. Like, Like I live in Texas and the majority of people in Texas have some affiliation with church. Whether it's I used to go to church, I kind of understand what church is, I, I go Christmas, Easter, but they also have other things that have their allegiance. So I, church is what I do on Sunday, and then the rest of my life is devoted to making money, and then it's devoted, uh, devoted to entertainment and to staying busy. And it's not as though we have just one, it's that we've come into the same temptation to have our, all the different other idols in our life. David Foster Wallace said, that we are dying to give ourselves away to something. We're dying to give ourselves away to something. And the good news, or maybe the bad news for us, is there are plenty of things who are more than willing to take mm-hmm. your life. So the, the thing is about idolatry is if you want to know where your idols are, you can chase your misery. Because idols make this central promise. They will give you everything for nothing. And over time, they take everything and they give you nothing. This is why the prophets rail against them. Because the people of God throughout history have struggled with always wandering towards other gods. And then the prophets would wake the people up and they would you know, turn back to, to the living God and they would repent of their idolatry. And they would do it in some pretty drastic ways. Like just two years ago in Israel, they were doing some stuff from... Uh, they were doing archaeological digs, and they found this from Hezekiah's reform back when he was re- the Israelites were repenting of their idolatry. He put this up over a pagan altar. Anybody know what that is? It's a toilet. Yeah. How awesome is that? That's how serious they took this. And you would too if you knew what this was. God is not against idolatry because it's a bad idea. Or because God is needy. God is against it for the same reason you would be if you really knew what this was. Like, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 19, this is one of the things it actually says. This is one of the gods that they're worshiping. For they have, the Israelites have forsaken me and they have made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense into the gods that, they, that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built to the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention. And it never, the God of Israel, it never entered my mind. Like Luke said, that sounds really primitive, right? Child sacrifice. But it happens every week to the God of success or pleasure or whatever. And those gods had names that the early Christians turned away from. They, 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 were, they were well defined, better defined, not so nebulous as they are today, but they are still alive and well. And every book in the Bible is addressing this. 
Every book in the New Testament. Matter of fact, it kind of makes the New Testament come alive for you when you realize, like every letter Paul writes, Paul goes into the Greco-Roman world, which is why we did this, where the temples to these pagan gods that stood for soul-crushing, life-crushing things. Paul goes to the, these places, these cities, and he plants these churches, um, and he writes letters about how to stand against the idols of their day. So, for example... Prostitution was rampant everywhere all over the Greco-Roman world. Does it change the way you think of what Paul is trying to do in his ministry when you realize there is only one letter that Paul mentions prostitution? Always, always against prostitution, obviously, you know, it's dehumanizing, demeaning, all those things. But there is only one letter that Paul stands so strongly against prostitution. And he mentions it several times. Anybody know what letter it is? Corinthians. You want to know what was in Corinth? The temple to anybody? Yeah, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love who was serviced by a thousand temple prostitutes. And it's there that Paul is like, no, 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 no. We do not, Christians are different. We do not worship that God. Does that make the Bible come more alive for you? How about this? There's actually a verse that Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul says, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Thanks, Paul. But does it change the way you read that? Does it change the way you read that if you find out that... And you can, you can Google, you can back rub this right now. The, um, the, the God of... This, he, he's writing a church planner named Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And the, God, the major goddess of Ephesus, one of the ancient wonders of the world, was the temple to Artemis. You can Google this right now. Artemis was known for, famed for, protecting women in childbirth. And all of a sudden, Paul, this little band of Christians, is writing a letter saying to them, no, 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 no. That, Artemis can't do that. Jesus can. From beginning to end, this is what the Bible is about. In fact, it's so much what the Bible is about that one of what we think might be the first Christian letter written, and the first letter in the New Testament written, Paul mentions this. And what a philosopher named David Bentley Hart calls... Uh, it says it might be a, a reference to the early baptismal liturgy where Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 says, the Lord's message, we're, we're glad to see the way that you repented, um, the kind of reception that you gave us, because we have heard that how you turned to God from idols. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. I have a friend who lives uh, uh, on a lake community in the Texas area. I won't specify which location for obvious reasons as you hear the story. But uh, his mom, uh, full-time mother, stay-at-home mother, and her kids grew up, and she had a great deal of resources and a great deal of free time. And one day she's sitting uh, on the back porch looking towards the lake, and she realizes her view has become impeded to this lake because her neighbors have a tree that have grown up and obstructed her view. So she goes over to her neighbor's house and says, hey, uh, I can't see the lake anymore. Would you do me a favor and cut your tree down? And to which they say, no, we're not going to cut the tree down. And so she's upset. So she goes home and develops this four-part plan. First thing she starts doing is every night in their little gated community on this lake, they have a security guard that goes around on a golf cart. And so she starts timing his trip around the community. 
she realizes it takes 15 minutes. And then the next day she goes out to uh, like a Lowe's and buys a herbicide and an electric drill. And then the next night she's home, she times the security guard when he's coming by, she has 15 minutes, she gets on her golf cart with her herbicide, with her drill, dressed in black, goes over to a neighbor's property, drills a hole underneath the dirt, pours the herbicide, goes home. She repeats this for three weeks until guess what happens? The tree falls down. Now, what would we call a person who tears something down like that? A criminal, like that's what you call, that's a crime, you can't do that. We call that, like, this is someone who needs to get a hobby, right? <laughs> but someone who tears something down in the Bible is often known as a prophet. Like, th this is the prophetic voice that we hear all through Scripture. Jonathan referenced Genesis. Uh, like Jonathan was saying, often we've drug it into our debates over how uh, science and, and faith work together. But the original argument was, which God is right? Which creation story is true? Is it the Babylonian creation myth? Marduk, Marduk and Tiamat, is that the story, how out of their conflict the world is created, or out of God's voice that the world is created? The story of the ten plagues. Who's the real God, Yahweh, or is it Pharaoh? Uh, after the ten plagues, after the Exodus, we get the Ten Commandments in which God says, you will have no other gods before me. It's the very beginning. The reason is because God has torn down all the other gods. And while we don't worship the same gods in the same way, it really is the same God, even if we don't give him the name. And when you worship something, you become that. Uh, let me read this to you from Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see idolatry over and over again causes people to become like that which they worship. Mm -hmm. And there's this theme of idolatry causing people to be like those gods that have eyes but they can't see. That you have this obstructed view when you can't see the grandeur and the glory of God because you have something standing in the way. And this prophetic work that we all must do is to tear down that which prevents us from seeing God. Uh, Christians make the best atheists because they learn to tear down all these other gods that prevent them from seeing the one true God. So this, that's what your baptism was. If you are a Christian, when you were baptized, you are joining in a long stream of people. They used to wait until Easter Eve, and they used to do it naked like the Garden of Eden. We've stopped that for you know, obvious reasons like lust and the opposite of lust, but they would wait until midnight on Easter Eve and they would go down and they would turn and they would face the West. They would face those temples and spit and renounce the devil. Then they would turn and face the East and they would pledge their allegiance to King Jesus and then they would come up and to the rest of the world, they really were. They were known by everybody as atheists. That was the principal thing that they were known by. These days, when, when, when people say they don't believe in God, the great gift Christianity gave the world is that nobody follows up with which God do you not believe in? Because the Christi Christian story introduced that idea of these things aren't real. They're not just not real, but we stand against them as harmful and oppressive. 
Now, earlier, he told the, the article from the New York Times about um, people who don't go to church are twice as likely to believe in UFO without unsubstantiated evidence. There's a lot more research about other strange things that people are much more likely to believe in, but that's honestly not what you're worried about, is it? We're not worried that more, more people are going to start believing in little green men or whatever. The things that concern me strike a lot closer to home. The real problem that we're facing is that for the longest time, there has been this idea in the air that what makes people intolerant and unkind and oppressive and unjust to other people is religion. And that if people would stop having religion, they would become more tolerant. Well, I've got great news. After 9-11, there's been a giant social experiment. The rise of the nuns are an incredibly giant social experiment showing what happens when people walk away from religion. And so it was last year, The Atlantic, kind of a left-leaning uh, magazine, wrote an article about this called America's Empty Church Problem. And it was a surprising article because for years, you would have thought Amer uh, Atl The Atlantic wouldn't have thought America's empty churches were a problem. You would have thought that it was a solution. But here's what The Atlantic said. Turns out, the idea that secularism would make people more tolerant was naive. Secularism is indeed co correlated with greater tolerance of gay marriage and pot legalization, but it's also making America's pardon, partisan clashes more brutal, and it has contributed to the rise of the so-called alt-right movement, whose members see themselves as proponents of white nationalism. As Americans have left organized religion, they haven't stopped viewing politics as a struggle between us and them. Many have come to define us and them in even more primal and irreconcilable ways. The article goes on to say that people who left church are more likely to be racist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and nationalist. It went on to say that the alt-right loves Christendom, an old-fashioned word that really to them just means like Western values, but it does not like Christianity because Christianity refuses to put a premium on blood and soil. Here's the thing. The things we're saying sound kind of cutting edge and, and like we're trying to be edgy and political. We would never say this stuff unless 2,000 years ago the first Christians turned and faced the West and spit against those gods. You want to know one of the gods they spit against? <clears throat> Athena. The Parthenon. You know what Athena was? The god of nationalism. The god of Athens. The god of us. Us better than you. You know, for thousands of years, nobody thought racism was a problem. Nobody thought it was a problem. And you'd be hard-pressed outside of the Christian faith to come up with real good reasons that can stand up to scrutiny about why it is. Why shouldn't I think the people that look like me are better than others? Why shouldn't I care about my people, the people that you know, share the same kind of traits or, or background more than others? But the first Christians spit against that idol. And we're called to do the same. And here's the point. Without considering it, many of us have found ourselves in uncomfortable places that we never really considered. Because turning away from something is always turning towards something else. If there is no God, and we hope to kind of prove this to you over the next couple of days, if there is no God, there is no such thing as justice. There, there's what you consider justice. But who are you to tell me what justice is? If there is no God, there is no value. You can value what you want. You can collect teacups when the Nazis are invaded Germany, and that can be your thing. There is no value, and you, you can't tell me what to value. 
If there is no God, there is no reason that strong people should not oppress the weak. In fact, there are several compelling reasons why they should. And have you noticed? Those reasons are starting to make a comeback. Here's the thing that early Christians knew that we have forgotten. You cannot not worship. You have to choose something. The early Christians referred to these as false gods. <clears throat> not because they didn't exist, but because they didn't give life. Yeah. We are far too naive about the powers that exist around us. We're naive to the fact that these things that are calling us to worship have effect on us. And Christians say that these are false gods not because Athena doesn't exist. Not because the pull for nationalism and to favor my people over all people doesn't exist. Christians call Aphrodite a false god not because the lure of sexuality and pleasure doesn't exist, but because it doesn't give life. Mm -hmm. Christians call Hermes a false god not because the god of the marketplace and money doesn't exist, but because Jesus would say you can't serve God and money. These things exist and they don't give life. Uh, earlier you mentioned the language of uh, addiction and idolatry. There's, there's an interesting correlation. In addiction, it's often, it begins as a promise to give you life. If you do this, it'll give you life. So you do more and more. And in the end, it offers you everything, but by the end, it gives you nothing and costs you everything. In the beginning, no cost offers you everything. In the end, it gives you nothing but costs you everything. And these gods are false because they do the exact same thing. Oh, this doesn't cost you much. Just, get, just, just follow this. But in the end, you have nothing. So the questions that we have to ask are, what are the gods we worship? Because we don't have the name Athena on some of our views about how we treat other people. We don't have the name Hermes on how we understand money. We don't have the name Aphrodite on how we understand sexuality, but it's all around us. Uh, John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Mm -hmm. It's always happening. Uh, David Dark in his book, uh, Life's Too Short to Pretend That You're Not Religious, says this about how you determine what false gods you have and what idols you have. <clears throat> if what you believe is what you say and do, the guiding provocation looks like, runs like this. Show me your receipts your text messages, your gas mileage, your online history, a record of your daily doings, and just to get things started, a transcript of the words you've spoken aloud in the course of a single day. And then we might begin to get a picture of your religious commitments. Karl Marx said that the, criti the critique of religion is the prerequisite of every critique. Hmm. It's not just religions in a church building, it's religions all around you. You've got to begin to ask yourself the question, where are my affections? Where is my devotion going? And so what we're going to do in this uh, abbreviated time over the next two days, we're going to talk about the god Athena, we're going to talk about Aphrodite, we're going to talk about Zeus, we're going to talk about Hermes. Because these calls to worship people just like us, to worship money, to worship power, to worship sex, are just as real today as they were in the first century. And so our call to be atheists is just as meaningful to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. In the year AD 155, a disciple of John the Apostle named Polycarp was taken into a stadium 
where he knew his life was about to come to an end. As Polycarp goes into the stadium, he hears a voice from the heavens that says, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the voice or where it came from, but others testified that they heard it too. And so Polycarp is brought before the proconsul. And the proconsul sees that Polycarp is a man of great age. He's 86 years old, and he begs him to be considerate of his age because if he isn't, he's going to have to kill an 86-year-old man. Polycarp responds to this and says, uh, to his request to have respect for your age, and he says, <coughs> 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He was burned, and according to legend, the fire never touched Polycarp. And so they had to stab him to end his life. And this 86-year-old man was set on fire and then stabbed, all because there was one request that he wouldn't do. And the request was this. Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. And Polycarp couldn't say, away with the atheists, because he was an atheist. He had renounced all these other gods, that they were simply saying, just worship them, just make an offering to Zeus or Aphrodite or Hermes or Athena or Dionysius. And he couldn't say away with the atheists because his baptism into Jesus made him live into the name that people in the first century called Christians, and that name was atheists. The ancient people weren't crazy to have a sex god and a national god and a money god. and They weren't crazy because Anything can be a God. And in like our pastoral experience and in looking in the mirror, we've seen almost everything become a God. And it leaves a trail of destruction in its wake. And that's why for people who are considering walking away from faith, from those of us who are in relationship with people who are considering walking away from faith, we would like just to get this in your mind. Today's atheism is sometimes noble. It needs to be acknowledged as such often. Because today's atheism often are people walking away from something that Christians were trying to walk away from 2,000 years ago. In fact, that's why they were known that way. It was not an accident that they were you know, chanting away with the atheist as Polycarp was burned. You want to know what Christians did then? This is one of our favorite memories in Greece. We go to the Athens Museum and um, we're looking at all these idols. And at one point... At one point, we see a statue of Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the goddess of love who has a very cruel face underneath once you understand just what was happening in the name of Aphrodite. And here's what you need to know. The people in the day were terrified of these statues. They saw them as somehow like a living representation of the actual God that could smite them or you know, strike them down or something. And at one point in the second century, as this new Jesus movement is starting to pick up a head of steam, some young woman went to the village center where the statue of Aphrodite was and carved, I don't know if you can see that, a cross in her forehead. How great is that? What looks to us like vandalism today was an act of subversion back in the moment. When, in a place where every, everybody said, this is the way things are, there was some young woman who climbed up to the center of the town and said, not anymore, because she had spit and renounced the gods. She did not believe this was anything more than a pile 
of rubble. And that's what I want you to see. Today's, you know, this is not detached cynicism. This is the kind of skepticism that got prophets, you know, killed and, and the early Christians thrown to the lions. It's the reasons that there are believers sitting in jail cells in North Korea today. If you want to be an atheist, a really good atheist, I know how. All true non-faith is done from a place of faith. Anything less than that is disingenuous. You have to have some position, some kind of thing that you say is ultimate in which to say, from that perspective, to say other things are not ultimate. And if you're not honest with yourself about what those things were, you will wind up worshiping things you never intended. The early Christians discovered that there was a God and that this God wasn't like all the others. This God was love, but this God wasn't just love. This God was justice, but this God wasn't only justice. This God was all that and more. And because this God was all that and more, none of those things could be worshipped. The first Christians were known as atheists. But church, today we worship too many gods. Let's pray. Dear God, would you help us wake up to the own idolatry in our lives? in the mirror and in our churches. Would you help us see again with fresh eyes the things that could rob our life and help lead us into the kind of life that is yours, the kind of life that is full? Would you help us stand against the idols and join in with the first Christians as destroyers of the gods well today? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.